HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, but if you added bacon. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. As consumers become increasingly interested in and concerned about the food they're eating, I have noticed that certain terms get thrown around, um, sometimes with little understanding about what they actually entail. And most importantly, a lot of consumers take for granted that ubiquitous terms like natural, non-GMO, organic ultimately means better and that they shouldn't eat anything else. This desire to make more choiceful decisions about the food they're eating is ultimately a very, very good thing. And at the same time, it also highlights the need for further education. One of the terms that is, of course, very much in our vernacular is organic. This term might conjure up images of bucolic farmland, fresh, healthy produce, and California cows that literally smile. But is an organic designation all that it's cracked up to be? Joining the show today to give us more insight into the organic food landscape is Alexina Cather, Deputy Director of the New York City Food Policy Center at Hunter University, which is about to publish a report on this very subject. Alexina, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Jenna. Thank you for having me. So happy to have you. Um, okay, so before we get into this topic a little bit more, can you tell us about the New York City Food Policy Center and the work that you do there? Of course. Um, so the Hunter College New York City Food Policy Center was created in 2012, and what we do is we work to find collaborative and innovative solutions to prevent food insecurity and diet-related diseases. Um, we're located in East Harlem, but we work throughout New York City, and we work with policymakers, advocates, community-based organizations, academics, and the public to create a more sustainable food system. And so what does this look like in terms of kind of the projects? I mean, this is, we're going to talk about a report that you recently published, um, but can you give us an example of some of the recent work that you've done? Yeah, so we are an academic center, but we also have, we have a few different arms. We have two programs that we work on the ground in East Harlem. One is in an elementary school where we do nutrition-based curriculum in a cafeteria setting. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other we do at a local senior center. We do uh, fun, fresh uh, cooking demonstrations for seniors to try to teach them about healthy eating. So those are two of the programs that we have Hunter students teach um, to the public. Mm -hmm. And then we have a whole editorial arm where we write original articles and we have a newsletter that goes out to about 6,000 different people. An amazing weekly. newsletter, by the way. I, lo- <laughs> I'm so I glad love that you like it. Yes, it is so, so informative and a wonderful yep. roundup of the really important um, stories that if you're interested in food, you shouldn't miss. That's great to hear. And then, <laughs> of course, we do some academic reports and we'll talk a little bit about the organic one. We've also done some on health and technology. Mm-hmm. And we have a series of food policy for breakfast events as well at our East Harlem location, and those are free to the public, and they range from topics like food labels, chefs in New York City, and how they're working to improve the food system, food waste, just a variety of food, um, both unique to New York City, but other issues throughout the food system in the United States. Awesome. Okay, so we talked about this report um, about organics, and how how did you decide, you know, why did, you, did the center decide to write something like this now? That actually came, we started talking about this after Urvashi Rangan, um, the chief science advisor at Grace Communications, came and did a talk last year at the center about food labels mm-hmm. and how confusing they are. And the executive director, Charles Platkin, and myself started talking about how much we learn from her talk and we're working in this space every day. And one of the things we started talking about is the organic label. And, um, you know, it's been getting a lot of, there's some controversy around whether it still holds merit. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to take a deeper look at that and see if that was the case. Okay. Um, so so this report essentially seeks to, to answer the question of, you know, how valuable the label is. Um, how, let's, and I guess let's just talk, let's just kind of start at the beginning. Like how big, what does the industry look like today? How much has it grown over, over the years? Well, it's growing rapidly every year, but it's still maybe even less than 1% of U.S. farmland is certified organic. Wow. Uh, I know we'll talk a little bit more about that, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of farmers are doing it without the label. And they're, um, you know, mimicking the same practices, but they're maybe not going through the organic certification process because of who they're selling to, the costs associated with it. There are a number of reasons why a farmer may choose not to become uh, certified. Right. Okay, so it's only 1% of farmland? That seems like a very, very small percentage. 
It's very small, but it's growing every year. Um, in 2017, the sales of U.S. organic certified food reached $50 billion. Um, huh. and, and when it comes to grocery store sales, that's about 5%. Right. So it's still, I mean, still small in the big picture, but it's growing every year. Mm-hmm. So the trend is going up. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, up to, there was a, a survey that I read where about 82% of American households reported buying some kind of organic on a regular basis. I think the 5% number seems small to me because maybe because we're New Yorkers. <laughs> I was I like, mean, there's I'm gotta be more. From, I'm from California and I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. So that number seems very small to me, but yeah. I think, I think that's definitely you know, we might be exposed to it a little bit more than other places. That's definitely, yeah, I I think that's true. And so one of the things that seems like, you know, a bit of a distinction is the the size of the industry in terms of like, A, farmers using organic practices or having the certification and B, the amount of organic food in our food system. So this seems to be, there seems to be some sort of a discrepancy here. How much of organic food is currently produced domestically and how much of it is imported roughly? So I believe as of 2016, about 31% of produce was imported, Mm -hmm. but that number goes much higher when it comes to soybean and corn. I think it's about 70% of soybean is imported and maybe 40% of corn. And, but that mostly goes to livestock. Right. And it's of any crop, I am like shocked that those are the two that would be imported in the largest in the larger quantities. <laughs> well, I think we'll also maybe touch upon this later, but that becomes an issue because the regulations around imported organic are very different than in this country. Yeah. And so in order for livestock to be organic, they have to consume organic feed. Mm-hmm. And if we can't regulate that, that creates a little bit of a problem. Well, what, let's talk, when was the organic label established? Why and, and by whom? Yeah, so like we did our math earlier, it was about <laughs> 38 years ago. <laughs> in 1990, um, farmers, many of them were already engaging in these practices, and they felt really strongly about sustainable farming, especially with the emergence of industrial food production mm-hmm. um, in terms of pesticides and antibiotics. And so they wanted to get together to advocate for a national set of standards. Um, They wanted to have recognition for operating in a way that their philosophy with ecosystems that are protected and celebrating biodiversity and conservation of resources, all that great stuff. So before then, um, it was each state could kind of develop their own standard for organic food protection and processing. Mm -hmm. And that obviously creates problems when organic products were crossing state lines. Um, Additionally, it was confusing for consumers. So in 1990, they went to Congress and Congress passed the Organic Food Production Act um, to establish a national set of organics and also a certification program. That seems to be very much kind of the trend that, um, well, to some extent, that like the whole non-GMO movement has taken, right? You know, you you see states start to pass their own um, standards and, and labels, and then eventually the federal government has to step in because it just becomes too unruly. Yeah, I mean, and we not not with GMOs, obviously, but even in some places, we're seeing local governments driving um, progressive yeah. and sustainable food policies. Yeah. Certainly, I think New York City is a leader in that, and obviously California as well. Um, 
and, and California has a lot of power because so much of our agriculture comes from that state. Right. So um, they, you know, they can really set the standard. Yeah, and, and move the, the needle up federally. Um, yeah. So what does it mean, you know, when you, what does the, the organic label, I mean, was it originally established because of like environmental reasons mostly or because of public health reasons? Like, do you have any idea behind the original kind of um, motivation? I mean, I think it was um, really, I mean, this is, I don't know exactly, but I think it was environmentally was, mm-hmm. and also in response to our food system, which was becoming increasingly more industrial. Right. Um, and here, you know, a group of farmers, I don't know how big, but, you know, I'm sure a good, a good group of farmers were practicing these sustainable practices and wanted to be recognized, but also have some consistency over what that meant. Yeah. What does it mean to, you know, what does the designation kind of mean or seek to guarantee within the different categories of food? So in order for um, produce to be officially designated as organic, what has to happen? So the USDA has, you know, a definition that has to do with all the practices being cultural, biological, and mechanical, um, supporting uh, resources, promoting ecological balance, and conserving biodiversity. Um, so, for what for, mostly for what it means for fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. is that no toxic pesticides were used. Okay. So, there's a lot of con- confusion. Con- a lot of consumers think that organic means no pesticides. Yeah, and and that is not the case. Um, organic growers can use pesticides, but only after they've undergone like a lot of scrutiny for their impact on human health and the environment. So what does that mean? <laughs> so well, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a difference between there are generally, I'm not a pesticide expert, but in general, there are two classes of pesticides, mm-hmm. um, natural or organic and synthetic. And, um, to, Put it simply, a synthetic pesticide is a product that has been modified by man okay. to kill pests. So you can usually spot what a synthetic pesticide is because it has a very long scientific name. Right. <laughs> but often now, you know, we see Roundup that is it has another scientific name, but it's called something when it's um, marketed. You know. Yes. So organic or natural pesticides are. For instance, maybe plant oils like mint can be used to deter insects. Oh, okay. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it should be called one. a pesticide then. <laughs> I know. It's very confusing. Um, so, yeah, natural or organic pesticides are what it's called. But okay. pesticide is just a class that is of any kind of chemical that is preventing pests. Okay. Uh, um, but I think you have a point. I think the term pesticide is really off-putting. Right. And even if I read natural pesticide, to me, that seems like an oxymoron. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, so, but so there are hundred. There are like what over a hundred different types of pesticides that are able to be used, or you know, a, a large whole, enough. Yeah. The USDA has a very long list of pesticides that are able to be used. I mean, you can guarantee that if you're buying organic, you're not buying something with arsenic or strychnine in it, That's unless good. it's. I mean, if it's. If it's domestic, for sure. Yes. You know, there's some fraud that happens both domestically and internationally. But for the most part, you are making a good choice by buying organic to prevent arsenic or strychnine. <laughs> seems like a good thing. What about from an animal welfare perspective? What is required to have, you know, an animal product that is organic, that is labeled so, as organic? For animal products to be labeled organic, first of all, 
first and foremost, I think they have to be eating organic feed. Mm-hmm. So that means that um, nothing can be grown with GMO. Um, everything needs to be organic. And like I mentioned a little bit before, that creates a little bit of a problem when you're importing large amounts of feed and mm-hmm. you can't test it. Um, so that's one part. Um, another is that they're supposed to be mimicking, you know, a natural environment. They're supposed to have a certain number of hours outside. Cows are supposed to be eating a certain amount of grass and, you know, having a free range. Um, but there was a lot more that could be done with this. Mm-hmm. And just earlier this year, um, under the current administration, a lot of those, um, progressive animal welfare protection laws were not upheld. So So this was you're referring this was uh, an attempt by the you know certain advocates like you know to create maybe stricter welfare standards because there were some actors who were really trying to get away with let's say with less than amazing animal welfare standards in terms of e- yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um and I've also read, you know, instances where uh there were reports made uh, against certain farms about poor animal welfare practices for organic. Right. But nothing really was done to follow up, you know, or they were kind of done at certain times in the year. The inspections were done at certain times in the year when they weren't eating as much grass. And so they couldn't come through with the fine or, mm-hmm. you know, punishing. So, it's, I mean, it's a little bit tricky, I think, to enforce. But I, I certainly think the effort was there to make it stronger, and that was shut down. So, what? How is this? In, how is the organic industry regulated? There's a third-party verification process, right? There is a third-party verification process. So, um, so like we talked a little bit about before, too, only farmers who are certified through the National Organic Program can use that official seal from the USDA. Okay. Um, and I think a big part of that is that it retails for more than conventional counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, there are a lot of people who still practice that, uh, organic practices, but don't have the seal and to get the seal, you have to go through a certain series of inspections or I think maybe there are 80 inspectors that can provide that. Okay. And then if you were a conventional farm, you need to go through a transition process of three years to become an organic farm with a series of tests. Mm-hmm. to soil and it also includes you know what even what you're treating your fences with so it, it's very regulated right okay so so basically you there is a you can apply for this the usda has oversight and then in order to actually get the designation it's a third party process verification yes process. and then there are inspections annually but only i think only five percent of uh, farms are actually tested so a lot of the inspections are more from handwritten records and reports, but the inspectors aren't actually testing the soil every year of every farm. Yeah, I don't really understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's very me much in, in some ways it's very much an honor system, you know. Wow. Um, the, the fines there are fines if if you're found to not be in compliance with the organic standards if you are in very egregious. You could lose your certification. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, it's a toss up. I think a lot of small farmers and medium sized farmers want to be organic because they really believe in it. Yeah. They really believe in practicing that for the environment. They believe that organic food is healthier. So I think, you know, I can't say this for certain, but I think there's less cause or worry for, for concern 
when it's smaller farmers who have made that choice because it's a practice that resonates with them personally. Right. Now, when we get to bigger farms, you know, I, I, I can't say for certain what the impetus is of why they want to go organic, but well, to I mean, me, it would, I would think it, it's because of the financial benefit, benefits. Yeah. Well, it's very much, it's financial. Um, so, you know, they can make more money on the, on the product, but also it's, it does reflect consumer demand like we talked about, right? They're like yeah. increasing yeah. interest in eating this way. Um, but that requires more inputs, you know, it's going to be more, presumably more expensive to produce. And so, um, cost, I could see pressure for cost cutting me- measures, even if, you know, the end result is they want it to be organic. Yeah. I mean, but on the other hand, like think of if earthbound was found to be fraud. Right. Big you know, problem. They'd be done. <laughs> they'd be yeah, done. They'd be. Yeah. That's a very good so, point. I think that, you know, the while the system of testing does not seem very strong, the implications for not being in compliance are really, really high. What about um, what about imported food? You talked a little bit about at the beginning about how it's, you know, really it's harder to kind of manage oh, that process. I wouldn't even say it's harder. I mean, I feel like it's impossible. I mean, people who inspect food at the ports are not trained to be looking for organic versus conventional. I mean, you and I, if we were looking at an apple or a tomato, you really wouldn't hard. be able to tell. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I'll so be like, is it ugly? <laughs> yeah. Is it ugly? I would think then it's probably organic, yes. you know? <laughs> um, but I, this, at, the, at most of the ports, you know, they're, they're just coming in labeled as something and that is what they're being marketed as. Right. So there's certainly been a couple cases of tremendous fraud, you know, that that would, would have benefited $4 million or something like that from soybeans that started out somewhere as conventional and then ended up in the U.S. and cost four, $4 million more. Wow. I mean, who, um, from a consumer perspective, though, I mean, that's, that is, and I think that that's incredibly problematic because you think about how much of organic food is imported, which, you know what? Why? I'm just going to stop myself and just be like, why? We have plenty of really air- good question. Yeah, plenty of and arable I, land in this country. So why why are we importing so much of it? I think the reason why we have to import so much organic food is because our country doesn't really place enough emphasis on the importance of it. So mm-hmm. for farms to transition from conventional to organic, it's really expensive. Yeah. And if they don't have support from the USDA, whether that's in terms of grants or some kind of incentive people, a lot of farms, small and medium-sized especially, can't do it. Yeah. So if the federal government's not placing enough importance on making this a possibility for more and more farms, we're having to import that food. Um, Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break, but I want to pick this thread up um, when we get back. So Sounds good. Yep, just stay tuned. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was introduced to Le Creuset Cast Iron Skillets many years ago in my first restaurant, Muggsy's Chow Chow in the East Village. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and the ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. And I love easy cleanup after running my own restaurants in New York for 23 years. Le Creuset Original Heirloom Cookware is backed by a lifetime warranty. Their bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. 
head to lecreuset.com slash HRN. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. And we're back um, where today I'm speaking with Alexina Cather about the um, Hunter College New York City Food Policy Center's pending report on organics. Okay, when we before break, we were talking about um, fraud, right, in the, in the industry. And one of the things that I wanted to ask was how can consumers tell if a product, if an organic product was produced in the U.S. versus um, versus abroad, right? So we said it's very, very tricky to, to be able to tell if an organic product produced abroad was, in fact, organic, produced organically. But if you're looking for domestic products, um, what can you what can you look for? Well, it, it, it should be labeled correctly. Um, you know, food when you go to the grocery store, it, it tells you where you're buying it from. Most grocery stores separate. Um, you know, have an organic section, or at least the specific apple will be labeled as an organic pink lady apple from somewhere in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, the closer to home that you're buying, the better the the better the chance of you getting an organic product is. If you can shop at a farmer's market and right. talk to your farmer, you may be lucky enough to come across a farmer who is practicing organic practices but doesn't have the certification, but because of that, maybe you get to pay a little bit less. Right. Um, and and I, I just think the closer to home that you can buy your produce and your food, the better chance you have of it being what it's supposed to be or what it's claiming to be. More, Yeah, more transparency into how that that particular product was produced. So what about, um, you recently told me before the show about an experience you had with a turkey farmer who wasn't organic, but had a really good reason for being so. Can you share with the listeners kind of some of the things we, we discussed? Yeah. So every year we go and pick out our turkey. Um, and I, I have two sons, so I think it's really important to show where our food comes from and I want them to know what it means to eat meat. So for the last two years, we went out to the farm where we get our turkey from and watched the whole process. Um, and so I talked to him a little bit about why he's chosen not to get that organic certification, and it comes down to cost. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, he's not selling wholesale. He's only selling at the farmer's market. So he meets the people that are buying from him every day. He invites people out to his farm to see what's going on. And he, you know, his animals are very happy. <laughs> right. They live a really good life. And he's been inviting people for the last six years who are buying Thanksgiving turkeys from him to come to the farm and participate in slaughtering the turkeys and processing them and taking them home. And then everyone shares a really nice meal together and talks about where the food's coming from. And everything is from his farm. Wow. So, so it's that's a great experience. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's really... It, I really like talking to farmers. I've never been a farmer aside from, you know, growing tomatoes and small things. And now I grow nothing in New York City. (laughs) Uh, So I think the more that you can talk to your farmers, the better. Um, He had a great story. And the reason that he gave me made total sense. He meets his his clientele every day. They are welcome. It's an open-door policy at his farm. And he just doesn't need to go through that extra certification to ensure that his customers know that they're getting the highest quality of meat. Does does he use um, organic feed? I don't know if you asked. He does. Him that. He does. Yes. Okay. Wow. He is very very opposed to 
not using organic feed and also from importing anything because like we talked about, it, it's kind of up in the air about what you're really getting. Right. Um, why, from a, con- from a consumer perspective, do you think, like, you know, I know that there's a lot of back and forth in the industry about, about like, the benefits, right? I mean, the environmental benefits are clear to organic production methods. But what are other benefits um, you, that you can say come from purchasing organic pr- products? Well, it's... Yeah, I mean, people go back and forth, and there's a lot of controversy over whether specifically eating um, an organic apple is healthier than a non-organic apple. Right. Um, But like you said, from an environmental perspective, that certainly has implications on human health as well. Mm -hmm. If you're eating food that's laden with antibiotics and we're releasing that into our environment, that's going to come back. Um, and creating antibiotic resistance, which can impact you later on in life. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked there was about a that study on the show. recently. What'd you say? Yeah, no, we've covered that recently on the show, specifically within the poultry industry yeah. and how important it is. And just contaminating, you know, the runoff of nitrogen and yeah. contaminating water. And so all of that comes back to, to affect us, even if we're not specifically eating that piece of fruit or vegetable, it's going to get back to us one way or another. So the more that we can take care of our environment and the planet and, you know, practice organic, sustainable farming, the better. Um, In terms of are organic foods healthier to eat, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of controversial. There was a study, a French study released earlier this year in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, and it followed a lot of people, I think. Like seventy thousand, most wow. of them are women. Yeah, um, and pretty, followed pretty them good over five size. years. <laughs> yeah, over five years, and it found that uh, those who were frequent consumers, and that was a key thing, that they ate a lot of organic food. Yeah, had twenty five percent fewer cancers. Wow. Okay. So, but here's the thing. So, I think people, and maybe this is a generalization, but people who predominantly eat organic food probably place a very high emphasis on their health. So these right. people also might not smoke. They might not drink. They probably exercise more. Yeah. Um, there are other know, variables. So they that maybe cook at home a lot more. So I just don't think that we can say 100% that organic food is healthier, but I think that there's something there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, there are arguments that say if you're getting organic food from 3,000 miles away, the nutrients are, you know, diminished by the time they get to you. So you're better off eating a local head of broccoli right. rather than one that's traveled a long distance. De- don't I know it? <laughs> yeah. And I certainly myself really try to practice following the environmental working groups, Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen. Um, that is, you know, environmental working group has a website and every year they release a list of the 12 Dirty Dozen do not eat not organic fruits and vegetables and the clean 15. Yeah. And I think that's for a lot of us, you know, who want to purchase um, organic food, but also want to keep in mind the economic costs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good way to follow what you're going to pick and choose to eat organic. Um, as in talking about kind of the, I mean, yes, a hundred percent. I think the EWG's information they put out there is invaluable. Um, so definitely to all our listeners, 
please check that out, especially as we all look to hopefully become better informed about these issues. Um, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, but I just have like a couple more questions to get in. And, you know, the one thing I'm wondering as we talk about like the more people are eating, who eat organic and who are supporting um, this method of production, like the better, I want to think about whether like the extent to which the broader food industry, so certain major food companies and, and consumer back packaged good companies, like they, it's, there seems to be more of a desire to kind of get into organics, especially because this is where the, you know, consumer demand is coming from. And I'm wondering, like, is this ultimately a good thing? I mean, it seems like wouldn't they have a big capacity to go much further faster because of the just their size and the resources behind them? Or are there some downsides to having major food companies kind of becoming involved in the industry? That's a good question. And I think it's a yes and a no. I think, you know, obviously it's great to have more more and more land being switched to organic. Um, but you have to consider the impact of large corporations gobbling up small farmers. Right. Um, and additionally, we're seeing a lot of previously just conventional farm, farms um, purchasing organic land, which is great. But at the same time, they have a really small stake in organics. Mm-hmm. And they might not have as much interest or incentive to grow the organic label. Um, and they could also encourage the USDA maybe to approve the use of substances in organics that might have previously been banned. And they might have more power than some of the smaller farmers. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so a downside I think, you know, also. in terms of uh, the planet, yes, it's obviously every acre that we can convert to organic is great. But there are definitely implications for that. And then what does the, you know, speaking of that in terms of the, so basically the upshot is like the answer is it's complicated, like everything in a food system. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it's complicated. They're pros it's and cons. Complicated. Um, what does the future of organic uh, the or, de- designation um, look like? I mean, it seems like it was kind of the design to be changed as the industry kind of progresses and adapts. So what are some of the maybe maybe big issues that are coming up for discussion or have been recently that could inform the future of this of this label? Well, recently hydroponics were approved to be certified as organics and that brought up a lot of controversy, especially when you think of a farm. You know, many people think of the soil being the organic component. Mm-hmm. So a lot of um, farmers were pretty offended and pretty upset by this and have pushed now to create what is called the Real Organic Project. And so they are pushing to create another label that should be rolled out in 2019 that is reserved for um, traditional practices and not hydroponics. And it places more emphasis, I believe, on soil health. Yeah. Yeah. Versus, I mean, okay, so <laughs> another label. <laughs> For consumers so that, yeah, to navigate. Exclude, it will exclude hydroponic farming and also large livestock farms that don't, you know, allow their animals to run pasture. Anything that's a contained animal feeding operation will not be allowed. Um, and it kicks out everybody from hydroponics. But wait, that's the same as the, as the current organic label, isn't it? In terms of animal welfare well, standards? Right now, hydroponics. Right. Yeah, hydroponics are included. But it just, it's just, it's they are, I think, in terms of 
going back to what we lost earlier with uh, animal welfare, this new label will place more emphasis okay, on animal on welfare. Okay, on that. Okay, great. Okay, great. So that's really interesting. I don't know if I totally... It's great. I mean, it's great, but again, the labels, it's so confusing already. Even for people who work in the space, it's really, really confusing. So yeah. just another thing for consumers to be aware of. Um, well, speaking of that, um, where can our listeners go um, if they want to be kind of better informed about these issues? And when will this report be published? This report is coming out in the next couple of weeks. We're just finishing up. We had originally scheduled to uh, release it a couple months ago, and then we actually had to do some fact-checking. There was controversy around one of our sources. So we will be publishing it in the next couple of weeks and it will be available on our website, mm-hmm. which is nycfoodpolicy.org. Um, please come visit and yeah. also sign up for our newsletter, which will alert you to when the report comes out. And also you'll get uh, the weekly digest that Jenna is such a big fan yes, of. Yes, I am such a big fan of. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But Alexina, thank you so much for coming on the show and um, discussing this really important topic with us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good night. Thanks. All right. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. And all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever podcasts are found. And one last thing. I wanted to let all of our listeners know that tickets are on sale for the Winter in the Garden Um, event, which is HRN's Holiday Party and Tasting. So if you haven't got your tickets yet, you should absolutely do that like right now. Um, They're available at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. I'm Jenna Liu and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.